Salutations and good day to everyone. I'm your host Possum with The Grith Show and I'm here to welcome you to the inaugural episode of The Grith Show Graveyard Shift. That's right, Grith Show 3.0. It's fearful, it's gruesome, it's shocking. The idea of this show is to keep the general variety show structure of the original Grith Show, but this time it'll be audio only. So approach it like a radio show, something you can put on in the background and get everything you need from. I'll be talking about games and movies, drip-feeding you weekly episodes of an original radio play and asking you some questions that I want to know the answers to. And that's not even half of it. We've got guest speakers. We've got tunes. We've got everything you could possibly want. So keep an ear on this show. That's enough babble from me. Like Pandora, let's open this box of horrors and discover what hides within. Throughout today's show, we'll be playing a hand-picked selection of public domain music from 1927 and before to really sell the radio show vibes. And speaking of radio shows and other outdated types of media, let's get started with some discussion around analog horror and its place in the gaming sphere in our gaming segment. First though, here's Stardust from Hoagie Carmichael and his pals.
One of my most anticipated games right now is Home Safety Hotline, which has you playing as a phone line operator taking calls about the problems in people's houses that can range from the mundane to the monstrous. It's coming to PC sometime next year, and I got the chance to speak with the developers recently about the game and why you should play it. Home Safety Hotline is a uh, call center horror game. You play as a phone operator answering callers' questions about what's inside their home. I'm Nick Lives, creator of Home Safety Hotline. I, I do the programming, the art, and the writing. What were the biggest inspiration? For the look, two big ones come to mind. I mean, besides real life, uh, like 90s software, the idea to do that came first from just playing a lot of uh, Hypnospace Outlaw, which uh, we're big fans of here. I actually have a, a, a dumb little cameo in. Um, there's a little dancing pizza gif in Hypnospace Outlaw, and that was that was my contribution. Yeah, that between Hypnospace Outlaw and discovering the analog horror genre, which obviously you know had a very big influence, um, specifically Gemini Home Entertainment. That series in particular, and the tone and the style of it, carries a lot of how we approach uh, how the game uh, looks and and feels. I'm David Johnson. I do kind of the mixing, engineering, sound design, music composition. Yeah, no, similar, definitely similar kind of genesis from a lot of the uh, sound design ideas. 90s software primarily, which, you know, looks a lot like, you know, you got your FM synthesis for creating the all the different little UI sounds and then lots of methods of reducing the amount of data information present in the sounds. Um, so a lot of like kind of bit crushing plugins, that kind of stuff. It's kind of a mix of stuff there. Um, and then in the calls themselves, trying to do a mix of like emulating, you know, a telephone, but also also missing some information there because we're also still, you know, the stuff is happening in the 90s. So you're going to get the phone call through the computer, which is already losing information. So trying, trying to emulate a that kind of sound that people are like, yeah, I know that that does have a unique, interesting sound, but I'm not sure why. Like, I guess the common phrase is, uh, you didn't notice it, but your brain did kind of thing. In terms of the artwork, in Nighting, a lot of them were sort of claymation, little like figures and things. Uh, it, does that carry over sort of into this? Like Night Signal, it is mixed medium. So there are things that are physical in it. And a lot of that is is the cutscenes are live action again, like Night Signals. Um, and so you will see, like, I have like uh, this goofy Halloween mask collection, and so some of this shit makes an appearance. Uh, basically, any weird, creepy thing we could find that we could take a photograph of and integrate it into an entry, we would. Yes and no. Most of it is Trevor Henderson style photoshopping a spooky monster into a photograph. But uh, there are there are still remnants of uh, of the of the physical involved. Physical little guys, uh, Trevor Henderson style stuff. I mean, I'm happy either way, right? He had a lot of fun making a lot of these monsters. He'd be like, Courtney, come and come and see this new little guy I made. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that kind of freaked me out. <laughs> The phrase analog horror has been mentioned a couple times now, and I've referred to the game as a really good example of analog horror. And I, I'm going to ask a more general question, not necessarily about the game now, and just what is your sort of take on analog horror as a trend and its place in sort of like the online 
horror media canon. Oh, we never talk about analog horror. Oh, no. No, we, I think we talked about it a lot on the site, kind of like the different kind of modes of analog horror that we see. Um, we tend to definitely tend towards the flavor of keep it very well grounded, usually keep the jump scares to a minimum. It's like presented kind of just bland and in your face. Just the message as it is and the horror of it is almost normal presentation of something that's horrific and odd that's happening that's out of place. Like, wait, what? What did that? What did that PSA say? You know, not to put down the other side either. Jump, jump scares can certainly be fun. Yeah, we're more the local 58 Gemini entertainment side than the, I guess, the Mandela catalog. There's kind of two contrasting forces, it seems, in the analog horror world based on their influence on the genre. And they are both very different and very unique, but um, yeah, we tend to prefer the ones that have this secondhand nature to them, where you, yourself, you, the, you, the person watching this, are not necessarily the person um, experiencing the horror directly. It's you're watching a PSA about something horrific happening elsewhere, or you're watching an instructional video about how to survive some horrific thing, or or just discover the existence of uh, some horrible creature that lives somewhere that you might come across, but you might not. It feels like the fear they're tapping into is actually just the fear of learning that the world is a dangerous place. Um, like when you're a kid and you first come across a weather alert or you first come across pretty much any educational safety media uh, you have this sense of unease because you're like, oh, wait, like there's chemicals in my house that can make gas that can kill me. Why? Why is this something I have to worry about? Why are there why are there dangerous things in my home? Why? Why do we live in this horrifying world where where these things are going to happen to me? Let that skinnamarink feeling of like you know, the the innocence and the familiarity of home. But back to Home Safety Hotline, I have one final question about the game. Without spoiling anything, is there something specific that each of you are excited for players to experience for the first time? The, the two ways that the game can end, I'm very, very excited about. It's some of the stuff we have the most fun making. Yeah, like for for me on the audio side, I mean, yeah, I'm excited for people to see the music because like the people that have played it, I've been surprised to see people like kind of like getting in the groove with like the hold music. And I'm like, the hold music? <laughs> so that's so that's, uh, that's what's getting into your brain, <laughs> which is great. I'm I'm that makes me so happy to see that. But yeah. I'm, I am Courtney King Lives. I am wife to Nick Lives. I am the director of all the voice actors that are in the game, as well as being the voice actor for Carol. On my end, I'm just excited to see people's reactions to just how many voice actors we have in the game, because everybody only got a small snippet of the large cast of voice actors that we have. Some of them will make you feel like you're scared for your life, absolutely worried, or you'll just laugh so hard at the outlandish uh, creative uh, liberties that they took with their characterizations and stuff. So I'm really excited to see more people's reactions to more of the voices that we have in the game. 
outstanding. I, I can't wait to be uh, scared out of my mind by some characters. We have more voice actors now than Oblivion, which is... Sounds like a joke, but... <laughs> um, I swear, I was actually impressed by that when I saw that. I was like, wait, we have more than the open-world AAA title? We have more than... We have, we have, they had... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's wild. That is, that is a crazy number. Um, and I can't wait to hear every single one of them when the game uh, releases. Thank you all for speaking with me today. And I hope, I wish you luck with the rest of development. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. This was, this was a very fun opportunity. Thank you. I yeah, appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really can't wait for this game, but for today's discussion piece, I wanted to voice some thoughts on analog horror as a genre that I've been wanting to get out for a while, as I have been wondering, have we seen any really good analog horror games yet? And I'm talking about new ones, I'm not talking about ones that are posthumously, accidentally analog horror. I've called Home Safety Hotline the best example of analog horror in games. It's even up on their Steam page as a quote. For those who don't know, analog horror is a genre that primarily features and focuses on trying to use a non-digital aesthetic to make something feel more chaotic and realistic. It's a natural extension of something like the found footage genre. It feels like you're watching an old VHS rip of a PSA or a documentary, but things are off they're wrong, it feels uncanny. It helps that a lot of people have a sense of nostalgia tied to this style of media that ostensibly doesn't exist anymore. It's had great success in web series like Local 58, Mandela Catalog, and Monument Mythos, and even in movies like Skinnamarink. But what about games? There's plenty of games to emulate the style of things like Mandela Catalog, but that's all they're doing, emulating. They're all short experiences that generally feel like experiments. And a lot of the time, they're not really doing anything original or different or really even adapting them to gaming itself. And even when they do, it's very basic and very minimal. Often they don't justify why it needs to be a game over being, say, a web series. Even Home Safety Hotline feels a bit distanced from this analog horror genre with its sense of humor, focus on gameplay and information over scares. Which makes you wonder, what even makes analog horror? What is it? Of course, I laid it out earlier, it's trying to emulate a certain era of media and the degraded look that can carry with it now in 2023, but is there more to it? I think I may have cracked the code as to why no games ever sit right with me when it comes to analog horror. It's because they're games. This explanation is twofold. First, analog horror being a genre wants you to feel like you'll get a call telling you have seven days to live after watching it. Series like Mandela Catalog are entirely predilected on the uncanny valley and this outdated video aesthetic is basically the digital version of the uncanny valley. But video games have already done that. It's hard to feel the uncanny effect in a medium where most NPCs already are in the uncanny valley. Moreover, the concept of a game just doesn't gel with this era of media. The 90s PSA, the Blair Witch found footage aesthetic, simply being in such a contemporary medium kind of takes you out of being immersed into this being a real piece of lost and found media. And it being a game is the second thing. The interactivity kills the simplicity. Analog horror is simple and that's why it works. So 
When you look at something like the wonderfully written and paced silk bulb test, it doesn't gel properly because you're watching a video whilst sat in a 3D animated room. It's also why Maple County actually does work until its ending. Super simple video that feels like a period accurate interactive training course that then cuts to a 3D environment. Spoilers for that, by the way. I'm not going to sit here and just talk shit though. All the games I've mentioned here are good games. And there's other good analog horror games too, like The Closing Shift, Discover the Ocean, and Home Invasion. It's a burgeoning genre still, especially in games, but one that I think is still really trying to find its footing. However, I still think that Home Safety Hotline could end up being the game to truly perfect the translation into the medium of gaming. But what do you think? I'm just talking out my ass over here. Are there games that I'm just straight up missing? Let me know what you think before we move on to our next segment, where we'll peer into a potential far future. We interrupt our gaming segment for a word from our sponsors. Today, we're sponsored by Uncanny Away, the spray that makes uncanny horrors bearable. And of course, by you, dear listener, you are the one that makes this show possible. Let's take a break before the second part of the gaming segment and listen to the silly little ditty that is I'm Looking Over a Four Leaf Clover by Nick Lucas. Farewell, every old familiar face. It's time to go. It's time to go. Backward, backward to the little place I left behind so long ago. Oh, watch Mr. Casey Jones carry this lazy bones. I should arrive in a day. Only wait till I communicate. Here's just what I'll say. I'm looking over a four-leaf clover that I overlooked before. One leaf is sunshine, the second is rain. Third are the roses that grow in the lane. No need complaining, the one remaining is someone that I adore. I'm looking over a four-leaf clover that I overlooked I'm 
child i'm going to look into my crystal ball and look into the future that's right to close out our gaming segment let's wonder what the future could hold as i take on the mantle of the spectacular speculator i will convene with the universe to predict the future of a classic series. Today, I'm scrying into Dino Crisis, a curious franchise in 2023, mostly because it hasn't had a remake. In a world where Resident Evil is well into its remake cycle, and even Dead Space recently had the remake treatment, you'd think Capcom would jump at the chance to do a remake of a game that was made as a spiritual successor to Resident Evil 2, as a spiritual successor to Resident Evil 2 Remake. Picture it. The raptors can act more like the stalker enemies of the newer games. And imagine how detailed and storyful the facility an island could be with modern graphics and art design. Now you're probably wondering how this ties into analog horror. Well, in a remake, I'd hope they don't modernize it too much. The beefy engine rooms, clunky computers, and chunky frame rate switching inventory screen designed in the same era as a lot of the technology that Analog Horror is trying to emulate now adds a lot of charm to the original game. Think of the computer systems and tour screams from the original Jurassic Park and how now in this new game you're the one that has to deal with that being the only thing you have to escape these clawed killers. Food for thought. Oh, but wait. In my mind's eye, what is this that I see? Why? Capcom recently announced a new version of the RE engine, and it's going to be called, get ready for this, the REX engine. Surely, surely, we can look forward to a Dino Crisis remake within the next few years on the literal Rex engine. Of course, I have no proof of this, only what the universe tells me. Now, you must leave, but be sure to let me know if there's any other games you're curious if we could get a remake for, and I will try to see if the spirits can tell me anything about their future. And moving out of our gaming segment into a segment on my first great love, film. In the creatively named film segment, the theme of today's film segment is studio meddling. And for now, we're going to stay looking into the future as we listen to our first ever guest spot on the show, which I'm really excited about. This is The Death of Artistic Commitment by the indomitable Charlie Parkin. Bad news, gang. We no longer have to artistically commit to anything anymore. Or maybe that's good news if you're a Marvel Studios executive who doesn't have any idea what their fan base actually wants despite having 15 fucking years of market research at your hands. And you thought AI was going to be the death of art. No, much worse. Art by committee delivers the final blow. It's unsurprising then that every single MCU movie conceivable for the future has been delayed by even more years. And we can pretend it's due to the strikes, questions of ethics, but when the fuck has that mattered to Marvel Studios? The company who hire in a VFX house, undercutting rates because they're Marvel, of course you're gonna take them as a client, scrapping any kind of retainer for the workforce and working them into the ground with endless, endless revisions. So many revisions that Disney literally destroys your company. Don't come at me, Lion King. Okay, actually, there were a couple of tunes that are sick in there, but the point still stands. 
we no longer have to commit artistically to anything. Case in point, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Arguably Doctor Strange's biggest adventure yet, helmed by an incredible director. In the film we got a wonderful introduction to all of our favourite people, including the guy from The Office as Mr. Stretchy and the legendary Patrick Stewart returning as Professor X. We also got to meet fan and comic book favourite Black Bolt. Yeah, no, I didn't know either. And what an introduction we had. His design was polished meticulously. His casting so well thought out. His scenes so marvellously directed. Oh wait, sorry, no. Graham Churchyard, costume designer for the film, says that both Black Bolt and Reed Richards' costumes were entirely CGI. Hmm, can you see where this is going? Joking that he's sure that VFX supervisor Janik Sir is still not speaking to him for not making those costumes for real. Stating that it got to the point where there was so little time when the decision had been made that worked with the future of Marvel and what could be done at the time, there wasn't actually time to make physical costumes there. Whoa, now that's silly. Well, what does that mean for the actual creation of this costume? Well, first and foremost, it means that the VFX team had to manually add this in post. There are actually a couple of good reasons why you might do this. We can see this in the case of Iron Man 1, where the suit was completely made for real, but didn't have the correct look and the right amount of shine, so needed digitally enhancing with a replacement in post. Now that's all well and good, because on the set, they had a design that they were working with. What scares me about this part of the process though, is that to add this costume in post, you need three separate layers. You need a clear and isolated plate of the actor with some kind of tracking data. Plus then you need a CG asset of the suit. So for every shot that Black Bolt appears in, there are these three layers at play. For the keen-eared listeners, you've just noticed a fatal flaw in this. Indirectly, Marvel has made it so that they can test screen each of these three elements. Oh no! The test audience really don't like the location. They think it's really, really derivative and doesn't look anything like the comics do. Well, not to worry. Let's just quickly re-render that background. We can do a little bit of relighting in post. Again, we've got our unlimited budget and we have this company that will never ever stop doing VFX for us, even though we don't pay them a retainer. Wicked, we'll just get them to relight that CG object and composite those layers together again. Oh, look at that. What could be more Hollywood? It's perfect. And the fans love it through the roof. We just want to deliver what the fans need. They're hungry. Oh, actually, Graham, do you mind just changing up the costume? Our test audience think it kind of looks a bit Batman with the rubber nipples. Maybe a bit of color. That would really go down with our 15 year old audience. Oh, sweet. So let's send it back to that VFX studio to recomposite that new CG element that they've just rendered. Perfect, now we have all the layers in place. Hi, sorry Anson Mount. Just so happens that the test screen audience didn't really like you. We're gonna replace you with Dwayne The Rock Johnson instead, if that's all right. It fits better with our target market. So let's cut that actor from the film. It is perfect. All thumbs from the test audience. What could go wrong with this? Let's cut print that, am I right? Because that's the words you use when you're filming on set, isn't it? And the execs all drown in $100 bills and spray champagne all over each other. Well, bottom line is that sounds fucking horrible. Everything about that sounds terrible. I have a background in visual effects. I would hate endless revisions with no extra pay 
I also dabble in a bit of directing and I like making my own stuff. Can you imagine having all of that artistic control and commitment taken away from you by the studios above at this unprecedented extent? It just doesn't sound right. And worst of all, you walk into the cinema to watch the film and you feel like it's been made by committee, pumped fresh out of the sausage machine. And we're coming to the point where that's not a subjective opinion. That is what the experience feels like. Audiences go and watch the Avengers or Marvel films, not because they're films, but because they're just mindless entertainment. I'm a fan of mindless entertainment as much as the next guy. But something really doesn't sit right with me, especially when humans are making this. This isn't some AI that blindly makes the content we think we want. This is a human workforce in the Ford machine that is Marvel Studios. We're at the stage where committing to release dates doesn't even exist, with Stranger Things Season 4 overrunning in production and the editor just outright admitting to the fact that they've replaced visual effects shots after the release of the show, or changes ranging from minor to major happened to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, right before our very eyes in the cinema, with dialogue, colours and even sequences removed from the film. All of this happening at the same time as Indiana Jones has its entire ending leaked, and it's universally hated as the worst thing they could do with Indiana Jones. The studio come out with statements like, Oh, we'd never do that to your beloved character. We were never thinking of that. Why, why, who do you even think we are? And then sneakily schedule a reshoot, re-edit, re-score, re-color, re-dub of the entire ending. What's the point? But after all this lack of commitment in the filmmaking process, there is one decision that absolutely categorically matters. One commitment that studios cannot ignore whether that studio leads on refined, interesting, crafted films, or churns out films by committee, the decision that studios cannot ignore is the decision you make when you book the tickets. So what do you want to watch? Personally, I feel, or I guess at least hope, that we're moving towards a place where films made for their artistic value can go head to head with the popcorn Christmas lights movies. I mean, Barbenheimer was just this summer and Marvel movies are getting the lowest ticket revenue in years, so maybe hope wins out. Anyway, thanks so much for that fantastic piece, Charlie. It's great to have you on the show. Next up, I want to talk about A24, its rise to glory and why people seem to have such a connection to what boils down to a faceless corporate entity not unlike any other. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Another terminally online film bro going on about the newest bone-chilling, jump-scare-free, atmospheric, character-driven, slow-burn horror film from A24. And no. But yes, but no. Hear me out. Obviously, basically everyone knows A24 now, a Manhattan-based film and TV production studio which, over the last few years, has grown exponentially to producing several of the most talked about films of the year and, in 2022, a movie that swept the Academy Awards including winning Best Picture. It feels like the meme I referenced earlier of the pretentious horror fans, people who use the horrifyingly anti-academic phrase, elevated horror, is just a caricature that's long behind us. It's safe to say that people aren't really making jokes about liking A24 anymore. How can you? But against all odds, 
A24 superfans have held on, whilst normally these kinds of people only hang around when things are obscure and they seem unique for liking them. There's people all over social media still making it their entire personality on the same level as Swifties and BTS stands. And you've got to ask, why? It's not like there are people who make a film studio their whole personality. We all know about Disney adults, but those quote-unquote people exist because Disney has gone out of their way for decades to create an image around themselves that it's a lifestyle. But there's no A24 parks to visit every day, no A24 streaming service, yet. But you still see people wearing the sparse amount of branded merch A24 releases, be baseball caps or uh, underwear, I guess. And people still put A24 fan in their bio, letterbox profile, what have you. I believe the answer lies not in A24 themselves, but in the industry as a whole. Give me a sec. Why is this all that I've written? Did I just... Did I not finish the script? Okay, cool. I'll just wing it. I know where I was going. So... If you look at the industry right now, what do you see? Major elements of the industry fighting back against corporate sliminess with protests and unionizing, as they should, but the slimy parts of the corporations just get stronger with hundreds of millions being gobbled up by studio executives who haven't worked a hard day of their lives, who pat themselves on the back for churning out garbage that was written a day before shooting and then rewritten after test audience number 5b didn't like that one scene and the entire thing re-edited and replaced with cg by some poor hard-working studio in a non-english speaking country where they know they can get away with underpaying every single person there we see an industry that is bordering on anti-art that is rapidly approaching the worst state it could possibly be in as more and more mergers happen eventually the big five studios will become the big two and then they'll both be probably bought by apple or something and then there's no point in fucking living anymore when barbenheimer stands out in a year because it's the only time two studios release two standalone movies that anyone working on them or watching them actually cares about and one of them is an adaptation of one of the biggest toy brands in history. And the other is a biopic about the end of World War II, so everyone's dad's gonna fucking love it. We should be able to recognize in the face of that that something is surely wrong. You have to excuse my obvious hyperbole about that, but I'm trying to paint a picture of an industry that has lost its humanity. The film industry as it is right now but when you look at the big films that are standalone and are an artist's vision the majority of the time over the last few years a huge portion of that list will be releases from a24 one thing i've only mentioned briefly in this what's just turned into a rant is that whilst people is that whilst you do still see people making a24 their personality you don't really see people making fun of them anymore because at a certain point, you know, maybe they're right. I wish I'd written a nice outro, but I think that'll do it. You get the idea, right? On to the next segment. I want to apologize for making you listen to me just realizing I 
completely forgot to write the rest of the script. But, you know, I think it went well enough. I freeballed it there. That's been heavily edited, by the way. I'm speaking to you now after I edited the shit out of that. So, yeah, uh, that didn't just come out of me. That was like 20 minutes of sitting there like, um, um, you know, like, uh, Barbenheimer. Anyway, that is the end of our first ever film segment. And now for our final segment of the show, we have a local story from the mysterious town of Marshwood Springs. Before that though, let's wind down with Dark Was the Night by Blind Willie Johnson. Sad story behind that man, but fun fact about this song, it is one of the songs currently heading out into the infinite aboard the Voyager spacecraft. Let's go. Theodore Whaley, founder of the Marshwood Springs Oddities Society. It's been my duty, for reasons that will become clear in the coming months, to document some of the strange occurrences in and around our town. And now that things are beginning to unravel, I see no other hope for this town than showing these tapes to the world. This first story comes from a member of our community named Billy, describing an encounter he had with some birds over in the woods. My wife of three years, she's always been interested in the forest. She loves being with nature and in our old house would spend any free time she had in the woods. When we moved here, we had no idea about the ban on going into the forest, especially at night. Tuesday is always a harsh day at the shop every week. Another day of buying more than we sold. And the mold in the basement keeps getting worse. I was down there at the end of the day, putting the valuables away in the safe we have down there. When I looked in the molded corner, I saw, or I thought I saw, a hole. Everywhere the dark rot touched seemed as though it no longer existed. Before I knew it, I was walking towards it. I, I don't know if it was out of curiosity or, or shock or, or what, but before I knew it, I was walking toward the mold, but I'm getting distracted. I locked up the shop and began heading home. I could see Town Hall at the end of the main street. It cast a shadow in the light of the moon that consumed the whole street. The town's so small, I never bothered taking my car out before. I haven't used my car in months. I got home and I started to look for Sarah, and I couldn't find her anywhere. I started getting a little worried as she usually gets home hours before me. In the kitchen there was a note on the floor. It looked like she tried to put it on the table but in her haste would have just dropped it. 
It was a full A4 piece of paper, and it just read, It's right there. It's right there, and there's nothing stopping me. At first, I was confused. I called out for her again, not knowing what else to do. And then it occurred to me, and I was out the door. I'd never noticed her behaving oddly before. She had seemed a bit down as time had gone. I'd been at the shop so often, and we were having so much trouble with money. I didn't have time to think about. Hey, don't judge me, Theodore, okay? It's not my fault. But anyway, I stopped at the edge of the forest. There's something so foreboding about it, especially then with the moon directly above. The cold light casting the shadows of the leaves onto the ground, like a wall blocking my way into the forest. I turn around and I look back at my house. It never occurred to me how close we were to the forest, barely a block away. I thought about my wife, set at home hours before I finished work every single day, staring out of the windows to the trees, remembering everything she loved. My legs were weak, and I could barely muster the willpower to turn back and look into the forest. Something about that place, it's, it's rejecting me, repelling my very body. I turned and began walking. I needed to. A thin layer of cold sweat covered my body as I crossed the threshold. It suddenly occurred to me that I had no idea where she could be. This forest stretched on for miles and miles. How could I possibly find her? I decided I should just go home. So I just turned around and went home. So I could wait for her to get back so we can talk about this. Except... I didn't. I didn't. I found her in the forest. I found her in a clearing. With moonlight shining down on her under this, this tree. It was a strange shape. Full of holes and gaps. It shouldn't have even been standing, surely. There she was cradling something in her arms. I called to her, and she turned very suddenly. I felt a weight lift off me as I saw her smile, happy to see me. But the weight fell crashing down back on me when I glanced down to her arms, and my head began to spin. She told me, it's them. I couldn't respond. She gets on her knees and puts the thing in her arms down. She tells me, Ever since I was a child, they've come to me, and they've been so lost without me. The thing begins to get up. The thing was... It, it was almost like a human child, but malnourished. The body and the limbs were so skinny and weak. I was surprised it could even hold itself up. Its head was huge. Even for how thin the body was, it had no hair, and the eyes, the eyes, Theodore, they were huge, they were huge but human, shaking like it was afraid. The bottom half of its face was thin, and oh god, its mouth, it didn't have a mouth. It had a short beak like a bird, and the skin around it was pinched and wrinkled as though it wasn't meant to be there. I looked up at my wife in horror. She tells me, I'm so happy that I can share this with you. 
as she gets up, turning to touch the mangled tree. As soon as she does, they start emerging from the tree. There must have been more than a dozen of these creatures crawling along the branches of the tree. Sarah turns back to look at me, the light of the moon being obscured from her face as the bird children fill the space between the leaves. But not before I saw the moonlight reflect tears running down her face. The last time she cried like this was on her wedding day. She reaches out toward me. I don't think my head was spinning at this point, but I'm so far detached. I wouldn't even know if I was. I feel their huge eyes. Every single one of their huge eyes shaking, looking at me, looking down at me. And I can see my wife asking me to join her in the shadow of the mangled tree. <sighs> Once I got home, I didn't want to talk. Every night since then, she's been spending more and more time out there. I can't sleep anymore. Thanks, Theodore. Thank you to Billy for making the sacrifice of sharing this story. I wish him all the best. Normally when sharing this recording, I would recommend that members of our community not leave their homes after curfew. But I suppose none of that matters anymore. Thank you for your time, and I hope to see you next month. Spooky. Well, be sure to come back in our next episode to hear the next broadcast from the Marshwood Springs Oddities Society. Before we start to wrap this thing up though, I want to know, have you enjoyed the show? Has it felt cohesive? Are any of the segments too long or too short? Is there anything you want to see or not to see from future episodes? What do you think of the music? Is it too much? I'm just trying to get that radio show feel, you know what I mean? Let me know. Most of all though, I, I just want to know, did you like the show? Did you enjoy listening to it? But in any case, it is time to close out the show. But let's have just one more tune to play us out into the night. I've been Possum with The Grith Show, and I'll see you next time. This is Doc Boggs with Country Blues. People, while I'm gone, money to spend. Tomorrow might be money, and I knew have a dollar, not a friend. And I have plenty of money, good people My friends were all standing around Just as soon as my pocketbook was empty Not a friend on earth to be found Last time I seen my little woman, good people She had a wine glass in her hand she was drinking down her troubles with a low-down sorry man. Oh, my daddy taught me a penny good people. My mama, she told me more. If I didn't quit my rowdy, we'd have trouble at my door. I wrote my woman a little good people I told her I was in jail 
She wrote me back and answered, saying, honey, I'ma come to go your bay All around so jailhouse, it ain't any good people. Forty dollars won't pay my fine. Corn whiskey has around in my body, poor boy. Pretty women is a trouble in my mind. Eat me cornbread when I'm hungry, good people. Corn whiskey when I'm dry. Pretty women are standing around me, sweet heaven, when I die. If I'd have listened to my mama, good people, I wouldn't have been here today. But a drinking and a shooting and a gambling, at home I cannot stay. Go dig a hole in the middle, good people. Go dig a hole in the ground. Come around all you good people and see this poor rounder go down. When I am dead and buried, my pale face turned to the sun. You can come around and mourn, little woman, and think the way you have done. Thanks for listening, everyone. Come back next month.